Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Go. All right. Well, we're also live, so they can hear us. <laughs> there you go. Well, I hope I'm supposed to be on stage and not chat, right? I think, you are. I think you're you're set. I think, I think that's where we go. So for all the VIPs that are out there listening, I, I'm the, the more technically challenged of the two of us, and you'd expect that since Drancer is the uh, – all the he's the data guy right so as i look onto my computer screen right now i am looking at the nhl standings because i admit it transfer i admit it i was looking at the playoff uh situation and the standings and the numbers and everything going into it. our good friend rob williams rob the hockey guy also was saying hey look this is realistic now and every time we get a we get a good performance or we get a bad performance the emotions just go up and down like a big time thud and uh, that's certainly what happened tonight i mean it's crazy this team plays a a big-time opponent like the New York Rangers, and and the score was what it was, and now here they go play the Devils one night later with Yarrow Halak in net, and I think we got to start there, my friend, because Bruce Boudreaux wasn't pulling any punches. Uh, he was concerned. <laughs> no. He talked about how he needed a save in the second period after they got that one goal. Um, you know, by the time they got to goaltender number or goal number six, he wasn't even into it anymore, and it was a mercy pull by – any stretch of the imagination. Tough for Thatcher Demko. So, so and, and on top of he, that, he's he used the word. He used the word beaten man. He's to yeah, describe Halak's yeah. overall, like, joie de vivre, compete, his presence in the net, a beaten man. And then, yeah, he admitted he was concerned. I, I thought that was as frank as you're going to get from a coach regarding their goaltender, right? Um, and we know that Halak wasn't good enough today, right? But by the time the Devils were up, 6-2 the expected goals tally was one and a half like th- this wasn't even as bad a def- this was not even as bad a defensive performance frankly uh from a team level and yeah there were too many chances 17 in the first period don't love that but this was not even as bad a defensive performance as the one they put in against the new york rangers where i thought they beat the rangers pretty handily were on top of their game but were just sort of surrendering a ton of against the grain looks like they were probably a bet they probably had a better defensive game tonight and yet the outcome looks the way it did because Thatcher Demko's Thatcher Demko and and right now Yaroslav Halak is not the Yaroslav Halak that we saw earlier this season. Well, and that's well, the issue, right? I mean, average goaltending by Halak would have made a big difference in this game, right? Because even when you look at the first period goals, yeah, there were some defensive breakdowns, there was bad gap control, 
after the third goal was stoppable, you know, even the even the, the Jack Hughes goal, you look at it, and yeah, it was it was a good shot because he kind of disguised his shot and changed his angle, but it is a short side shot, right? And and you know, how many of those goals does Demko let in? So you've got such a an extreme, right? I mean, Thatcher's playing out of his mind, and now Demko's playing at a level that what is he, six fifty over six forty nine over the last three games that he's played? And Boudreaux said it. Gave up five goals in one period and got pulled last time. Gave up six goals in less than a game and a half this time and got pulled again. And he is concerned, and there's not going to be a real opportunity to play him because of the lack of back-to-backs. And then when you have to put him in, you know, at that point, there's going to be a lot of clarity, right? And, you you know, you and I have both talked about whether or not there's clarity today uh, and before yeah. tonight. But from a, from a team perspective and a pure numbers perspective, there will be more clarity at that point in terms of how to handle that situation. But... Wow, like this was polar opposite extreme. And you've got to look at Bruce Boudreaux because there was a lot of mixed messaging. But what was clear for anybody who felt that this was about getting Thatcher Demko a rest, it wasn't. It was about getting Yarrow Halak a game because of how little opportunity there was going to be going forward. So he didn't, you know, he wasn't willing to excuse the team for back to backs. He wasn't concerned about having to play Demko in this game just over a period because of the time off between games and and how spread out the schedule is. So really, this comes down to him feeling like he needed to get Halak a game. And at this point, you can criticize the coach's decision. No question. Hey, Farhan, I wanna I wanna keep keep commenting on this, but first I just want to note we do have the ability to raise your hand and actually participate in this conversation. So for those of you listening, we've already got Adam Y, who's requested to join us on stage. I'm going to let him on stage shortly after I make one quick point. We're also already seeing comments uh, come in. We will get to those too. I definitely want to talk about Dave S's question, which is, is it just going up against teams with any kind of transition defense? <laughs> there is definitely a theme here. Anyway, on the goaltending, one thing I want to note, Farhan, we've been talking a lot about like, save percentage regressing, right? Or at least, let's let's be real here. I've been talking a lot about save percentage you regressing. Have. Oh, yeah, you have. And every time I say it, people say, well, what about Thatcher? Like, it's Thatcher Demko. He might not regress. And you know what? At this point, I'm not sure he's going to, right? Thatcher Demko's on such a heater. He's not even what I'm expecting. But when you think about some of what's powered the Canucks record under Boudreaux, I mean, they got, what, three and a half games of 950 goaltending from Spencer Martin? Yaroslav Halak has been sensational all season until basically three periods over the last, um, you know, 10 days. Even Mike DiPietro had a totally NHL caliber start in Vancouver's home loss to the Sharks. So part of save percentage regressing at a team level is outside of Demko, which has actually been a real strength for this team. They've got wildly good goaltending from their fifth, like the guy was their fifth string netminder going into the season, in addition to their backup to this point. Um, that's sort of come back to earth the last two games, and that's sort of part of what uh, we talked about being unsustainable. Hey, I want to take our first ever call in, Farhan. You, you down with that? I'm going to invite Adam Let's do it. to the stage. Just keep, right. just keep it clean. Adam, you're on the stage. Keep it clean. <laughs> wow, I feel um, uh, I've been listening to you guys' podcast for a while. Um, Thanks, I know man. there's a lot of people in the community saying, you know, trans, you're like negative whatsoever, but I think you're a good voice in our community and you give us a good um, dose of reality. Um, I know you guys have been talking about, you know, like 
selling, uh, trading away Miller and stuff. But I think you guys are also talking about the reality of us making the playoffs. So the goalie situation is kind of like what I'm wondering, right? Because I can't remember the last time Halak really gave us a, you know, a fighting chance to like in in the game. I'm not saying like he needs to be like Demko, right? Because he wins games for us. Like there are times where mm-hmm. I feel like Demko just straight up won the game for all of us. And, <laughs> you know, like there was that Calgary game. Like yep. we were just asleep and we lost in overtime. I was like, there's no reason why we should have gotten a point in that game. But like. Mm. Like, we have Spencer Martin, like, we got people in the AHL doing well. Like, if somehow the team decides to, you know, fight for the playoffs, what's the goalie situation going to look like? Because I have no faith. Like, I am talking to people. I'm, like, looking at, I'm in Boston. I'm in these groups. Like, people are like, oh, Demko is not starting. We're going to lose. That seems like the, the, the idea I'm getting from most of the fans, at least. I don't think yeah, it gives think- us a chance to win. Like. Someone Adam, in, Adam, in I think I think the players are thinking the same thing, my friend. Like it's at that point, right after these last two performances, and you've got to look at it because if the coach admits he's concerned, you have to believe the players are also feeling a level of concern anytime Demko's not between the pipes. Well, but that's also the thing, right? Because I think anyone that's been listening to you guys, like following the money, is like. He got that bonus. I felt like he had no business getting that bonus. They should have just sent him away to the Oilers or whatever. They had shit goalkeeping. Like, there was no <laughs> reason we should have kept him around, right? Because at that point, you guys were on the podcast saying, oh, the Canucks are not going to make it. We should trade people away. I was like, yeah, they should have. Now we have a chance, but the goal is not doing anything. Because he's losing yeah. the game for us. There's no reason. I, I mean, I wouldn't Adam, do let any me, better, Let me but... jump in here. Adam, let me jump in here. And thanks so much for your question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mute you now. Um, so we can continue with the conversation. Thank you. We've got Lucas and Jugpreet also. also uh, we're also waiting for them, and we will definitely take their questions. We've also got Harmon Dial joining us live from the proof. Quit to quickly touch though on on Adam's last question. One thing that we don't know is the impact of Halak's no movement clause, right? I mean, ideally, what we've what I mean, not ideally, but hypothetically, what we've seen against the Islanders and the New Jersey Devils makes the case for moving proactively before guys have poor performances or maybe get injured uh, in terms of deadline moves. But in Halak's case, because of the no movement clause, we don't know exactly what the dynamics were, how the club was sort of maybe working with him to get him to a point where he might accommodate a deal. Uh, Perhaps playing him as if things were normal was part of that effort by uh, Jim Rutherford. It's why I'm sort of a a little bit hesitant to do my usual, like, that's why you have to be proactive. That's why winning in the NHL is not a passive activity thing. I'd love to do that, but I don't know that we have enough information for me to do it. Drencher, if they didn't didn't play, if they did not play um, Halak tonight, that would have Mm. been the narrative. Looking at the schedule going forward and the fact that it's back-to-back, you can make the case that, look, we got to do everything we can to win and we got to play our guy. we got to ride Demko. But at the same time, given the timing of one game before the bonus kicks in, that's going to be out there. And then when you look at the possibility of moving it and people talk about, you know, can you move the bonus along? And he's got a, he's got a limited no trade protection. Like Daniel Wagner's like, well, he might wait. Well, who the hell's going to want him now? Yeah, no, he needs to be he needs to be reliable. Hey, let's uh, let's welcome Harmon Dial in live from minute, the Prudential Center. Harmon, you actually are on. I thought with the per diem you'd be in New York running the streets. <laughs> hey guys. Hey Dial, how are you, sir? How's New York? 
It's uh, well, it's a lot better than New York. I'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> this has uh, definitely been a bit of an adventure out uh, out here compared to New York City. And uh, much like the much like the Canucks, I think I prefer things at uh, Madison uh, Square Garden. <laughs> the coldest press box in the league. Um, yes, the Prudential Center is an interesting spot. Did you talk to anyone one on one, or was it? Uh, too dreary a vibe after the uh, 7-2 loss. And not after the not after this game, no. Um, I think I will say though, and I'm curious to get your guys' take on this as well. But uh, after the game, I think this is one of the most frustrated I've seen Boudreau uh, because there have been there have been some tough losses along the way. But just in his time here, I think he was really peeved at the start that uh, they had to this game, and he repeatedly mentioned how in the morning meetings. They emphasized the importance of getting off to a strong start and again in the evening meetings and for them to kind of, you know, lay an egg like that, he, he called it shocking. So I think that was my sort of biggest takeaway after the game in, in the press availabilities was was just how pissed off Boudreaux seemed uh, uh, at the team for the way they kind of came out of the gate. Want to take another, do we want to take another call, Drancher? Yeah, you want to take a call? Let's, uh, let's do yeah, a... Let's do it. Let's do it. The next call, this is going to be a Ask Harmon Anything, and it comes to us from Lucas W. Lucas, you're on the Hello. stage now. Hello. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, I kind of wanted to bring up how um, going forward what the Canucks are going to do, because I know that, Drance, you mentioned a whole bunch of times that you were looking for that unprotected pick in, I think, 2023, I believe, is the draft you're naming it. Yep. How do we view that in our contending window, then, if we want picks coming from that draft? If they're coming two years maybe three years in terms of development after that. Does that really fit the window when we have Demko on the five-year deal? It's a good question. I'm going to mute you, and then I'm going to do a quick answer, and then we're going to let Harmon, uh, Harmon do it. Um, for me, Lucas, it's it's more about like draft picks and acquiring high-value draft picks, ideally one with a protection structure that gives it a chance to roll over. To me, that's either a pick you're making because it's it, it hits – and you're going to get someone who's ready to jump into the lineup right away. And there's a lot of guys who match that description in the 2023 draft class. But also, if it doesn't, it's like a super premium trade asset for a guy who can help you win now. It's the, it's the trump card you can play to make XYZ deal when whomever becomes available for whatever circumstance makes a guy shake loose. Whether or not it's a guy who's requested a trade or a team that, you know... Um, is is entering a surprise re-rebuild, like what happened with Jack Eichel or or what have you. It's, it's that that's the most valuable possible asset that I could see a team surrendering. Um, so whether or not it's a, it's a lottery ticket for Adam Fantelli or Connor Bedard or, or just like the super premium trade asset that you can use down the line uh, to make a deal that helps you right away, uh, that's just the most valuable asset I could see the club capturing. It requires you to make a bit of a bet, but uh, but that's sort of my, my basic view on that asset. Harmon, I want you to chime in, by the way, on, like, big picture takeaway, I feel like when the Canucks win a game or lose a game, everyone wants it to be a referendum on what the club should do at the deadline. It feels like the chatter changes when they win, as Farhan said, to open the show, right? He's looking at the playoff standings. When they lose, when they lose... Um, everyone's like, well, this is the reason they're not close enough. How much can we read into this team's results or, or do we need to, or does the organization you think have enough data at this point to know what this team is? I think at this point, we more or less know what this team is in terms of them being 
this bubble team and, and maybe they can go on a bit of a run and and you know uh, through through and through a really hot streak kind of work their way back into the playoff conversation but even if they do make it i, I think and this is why i really care uh, about the big picture is when i look at the playoffs i just even if they were to make it i just don't like their chances of being able to go far and i just think if you constantly sort of pursue um, a lower short-term bar at the expense of a bigger, the more important long-term vision. It just, I mean, that's been, kind of been the motto for the last regime, right? Of trying to pursue that instant gratification of let's just get into the playoffs. I mean, and look, getting into the playoffs, that's, you know, ultimately you want to be a playoff team, but you can't let it sort of, like my philosophy on this is always, You've got to do whatever you can, whether it's in the short term or in the long term, to sort of construct a cup contender, right? Like there needs to be a higher bar. And with this group right now, I just think they're too far away from being a cup contender for this season to like the playoffs. Playoffs are not doesn't really matter as much as their deadline decisions, big picture. What are you going to do with guys like JT Miller and, and Tyler Mott and Brock Besser? And, and so for me, you've got to kind of approach um, the long-term bigger picture without necessarily putting too much stock into even whether they make the playoffs or not. Because, because again, to me, I just don't think this is a club that even if they were to make it, that they would really go too far. I think um, management kind of sees that as well when they reference how reliant they've kind of been on goaltending. And it's also interesting to kind of look into the perception after games like these where people will debate, well, how much of this loss sort of falls on Halak and it's funny because after wins we it's kind of the opposite where we're like how much of the how much of this win was was Demko playing out of his mind and I think um you know one tendency that I've kind of noticed is um some of the people that were calling on this this loss solely being on Halak and you know he never gave them a shot um you know I do see a bit of hypocrisy where those are a lot of the same people that when Demko plays out of his mind, they view it through a more team-wide lens, and, and they don't sort of point out that it was maybe a bit too reliant on goaltending. But again, for me, big picture, I'm just focused on the deadline because um, this team's in the mushy middle. That's, I think, the biggest takeaway. Here's the thing, though, guys. We've talked before about whether or not the fans would digest that, right? Because when you get closer to it, and I think coming into the game, we were, um, I think the Canucks were three points out as far as the wild card and four points back in the division with uh, two and one game in hand, they were giving up respectively to Dallas and uh, Anaheim, if I'm not mistaken. And so, you know, you, you get closer to it and you can see it, feel it and touch it. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, when you're a fan and you have missed the playoffs in seven of eight seasons, you you that's enough for many. But today on Donnie and Dolly, <laughs> on their post, on their post, right, uh, they, they had a poll yep. question and almost 1,600 people weighed in and almost 75% of those people said, think about the future not push for the playoffs. So and that's a healthy sample size. So for people who think, can this market stomach more pain at the deadline, if they truly have a sense that the moves that get made, if they can see clearly what it's designed to do, I think they'll take it. Like that's a big sample size. It's a really interesting dynamic because this market is a lot smarter then I think this organization itself has given it over the years. Um, I think this market's been crying out for this club to do the slow cook as opposed to the, the shortcuts thing 
in contrast with all the analysis in so many Canadian markets over decades and decades that you can't rebuild in a Canadian market. I, I think what you've seen unfold here is a market literally begging for it and the club refusing to do so. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jug free, you uh, you're on the stage. Drancer, great great to be on with you guys. Uh, great great uh, live chat here. Uh, obviously, I met Drancer. I haven't met Forehand. Uh, uh, pardon me, Far, Forehand or Harmon yet. So, <laughs> and and Jug Jugpreet, of course, you've got a voice of an angel. This is Canucks anthem singer Jugpreet. How are you? Oh, this is, a le- this is a legend. <laughs> oh, I, man, I, I, thanks, you thanks can tell because the audio awesome. quality. <laughs> the yeah, audio yeah, quality yeah, took yeah, a lift. Could you could you sing for us now? We need this after a lot. We all need to be collectively sued. Hey, I, you know what, guys? I I appreciate all the all the support, and you know I'm I'm so glad to be a part of uh, the VIP community here. Uh, hey, are you uh, wearing your shades? <laughs> Pardon me. Are you wearing the shades you wore the other night? No, 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 no. Oh. <laughs> those those go with the white suit, Farhan. They were sharp. They do absolutely. <laughs> no, no, I, no, I appreciate. Uh, I, I actually heard the the clip um, earlier today. Uh, I was just kind of going through the vancast because I missed a couple of episodes, and uh, I mean, I appreciate you guys so much, uh, just just for the shout out and and everything else. And and I just wanted to kind of point out, you know, just watching this game tonight, you know, we we could talk about Halak, uh, but also I just felt like we were giving up too many backdoor plays, right? And there was just chance after chance after chance. And it just seemed like they just couldn't stop the, the bleeding from happening, right? And and we've seen that with this team over, you know, the handful of games, right? Um, um, which is really disappointing because if you look at, you know, the games before this, their offense was actually clicking pretty decently, but the de- defense and the uh, just the untimely sort of plays uh, by, by some of the guys, um, you know, it, it, it just... Uh, cost us the game you know we would lose seven four and, and stuff like that and, and tonight it was just I, I think one of the more uglier losses that i that i watched it just seemed like people were just walking it alone um you know for me i just uh i i thought that because there was three days between games like i i would have ridden demco tonight personally but uh um you know what i really wanted to ask you guys was about this core and really identifying who this core is right like for me i think PD is a huge part of it, Hughes and Demko. And I think uh, I think it would be a massive mistake, in my opinion, to, to trade Pedersen um, because I, I just feel like there's there's so much upside there so far. And one kind of example I want to prove to, or, or pardon me, go to, is, um, you know, the 2012 Anaheim Ducks. And I know they were at a different point uh, in their sort of cycle and they were a more experienced team. Uh, but I remember when Bruce Boudreau came in and they... You know, they almost made the playoffs, but there was a lot of chatter around trading Perry and trading, you know, Getzlaff. And, you know, people were out here like, oh, we, we can trade Mason Raymond for Corey Perry. And, you know, uh, <laughs> what, what a trade that would be. Um, so so my, my point is, though, how do we kind of 
identify and 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 this is uh, i guess a more question for management too it's like i guess you know they'll they'll have to identify who this core is and who they move out and who they don't right like you could make a case and point for jt miller staying around but it's like how do you add around the edges of that core right because jt miller to me yeah i'm, I'm a huge i'm a huge fan right like i think he's got a lot of versatility um and i know probably the first couple or two or three years you'll 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 probably get you know vintage more vintage jt miller and then things will start to maybe slide down a little bit but he's still a versatile player in that way um you know yep. I, and i just wanted your guys guys's thoughts on that because if you look at and and i know it's an unproven team but if you go back to anaheim in in 2012 they they kept most of those guys around and then they you know they had some good they obviously had some pretty good years after that jug thanks for the question I'm going to, I'm going to toss this to Harmon Dial first. Um, Harmon, how do you identify the core of this team? And, and particularly as it applies to JT Miller, considering his age relative to some of the other players, um, you know, that make up this club's group of top six boards. Yeah. I think yeah. for me, in terms of identifying the core, it's Pedersen, Hughes and Demko. Like those three are the only ones that I look at as surefire building blocks. Um, and I don't even include Horvat in that necessarily. And, and it's obviously tough because when you discuss players like Horvat and Miller and Besser, and we're having these hypothetical conversations of, do you trade them? Do you resign them? It, it's often hard to make those um, sort of judgment calls when you don't know a, what, what an extension would, would cost for each of those guys, because obviously what, what value contract you get, say a Horvat or a Besser or a Miller at um, that could often um, make a huge difference, right? If let's say a guy like Brock Besser wants um, wants you know something like seven seven million seven and a half million times eight or something, well then I'm sure there aren't there aren't many fans in, in this market that would stomach that and they would say, well that's not a good contract. We should deal him, right? And conversely as well, um, when you discuss the possibility of trading a lot of these guys, it's hard to know whether trading these guys is, is the right move because. Um, you're trying to gauge their market value. Now, when I look at Miller specifically and, and you kind of weigh um, the probable scenarios of what an extension might cost, um, which obviously his stock is, is at an all-time high right now with the way he's been playing right now, he's earned the right for uh, a seven-year deal or, or whatever long-term deal he sort of wants. Um, so you have to take that into consideration. And then also... When you look at the Canucks' window, I think it's in all likelihood going to take at least three years for the Canucks to construct a legit cup contender, right? And when you look at Miller, I'm not necessarily too worried about, hey, he's going to fall off a cliff at 30 because he hasn't shown any signs of slowing down through his late 20s. But you, the, the problem with, look, if the Canucks were in their contention window right now within where you looked at it and said, between now and the next five years, this is when the Canucks are going to go for going to go for the Stanley Cup. I would say, you know what, go go ahead and re-sign Miller. If it takes seven years, do it, um, and you can worry about the two or three years down the road. The problem is, if you're the Canucks, you can't just. And this is the nature. A lot of times, when you sign these UFA contracts and you're paying top dollar, is those final two or three years are always when things get dicey, and teams know that. But contenders can look at that and, and say. Well, we're not even going to be a good team by that. However, when you look at the Canucks, say years four, five, six, seven of a potential Miller extension, 
that is still presumably going to be the heart of the Canucks' cup contention window. And you can't afford to have an inefficient contract. And so the conversation then isn't just can Miller be an effective top six player for the next um, half decade, the next five, six, seven years. It's will he be able to justify the sky high sort of cap hit that he's going to carry? And then even if you do decide to keep him and even if he does provide that value, can the Canucks with Miller in the fold even even then still construct enough pieces around him to where they can um, they can build a contender? And I know this is what you've talked about a lot, Transfer, where um, they lack cap space. They don't have prospects coming into the pipeline. And Miller, I think by far, when you sort of weigh him against, say, a, a Brock Besser or Connor Garland, Miller is by far their most valuable trade chip in terms of what he'd be able to net. Um, and he's also, I think, the most expensive in terms of what he costs to keep, and he's also the oldest. And so for those reasons, I just look at Miller, and I really love so many um, of the things that he brings to the table, and it it would be such a big blow to lose him, but I just don't know if he's the right fit for this team. I just think that this team fundamentally, to construct an an actually elite team that can contend with um, juggernauts like Colorado and Florida and in Tampa, it's they've got to take a step back before they can take two steps forward. And I think in order to help take that first step back, it's, it's almost like when Colorado made the Matt Duchesne trade, like this is potentially your opportunity to build, to, to get in a couple building block pieces in, in moving, in moving Duchesne, who was a really good piece for Colorado at the time. You know, the, the abs were able to, uh, to get obviously Sam Gerard in that deal, Bowen Byram, and, and that really set themselves up for the future. So that's how I kind of view uh, Miller and his future. But when you look at JT Miller though, guys, you know, to use the Maple Leaf analogy, could he not be John Tavares, you know, in terms of where his age is at when they get to that point, you know, much like he's providing for that team around Miller and or around Matthews and Mariner. And certainly, you know, Pedersen and Hughes aren't at that level yet of those two guys. And this club's not as far along, but you know, when you, when you compare ages and roles and salaries, could he still may not be a fit at that point. And again, I understand, Arm, you're totally right. This, it comes down to, what they need like they have so many needs relative to leaves so he can help provide some of those needs there's no question about it now farhan i I, you know but but, far be it far be it from me to castigate castigate you for not watching as much of the mighty blue and white as i do um but as someone whose actual bedroom is steve dangle's set um (laughs) uh, john tavares (laughs) is, is is making the opposite case over the course of the past two months from from the one that you're pointing out, right? Like no, but in John, the last couple John, of years, when we still believed them to be a contender, he was a key part of that team. Sure, I know but, his numbers but, have looked like of late. But, but in a year, why did they two, bring him in? But in a year or two, Tavares is going to show you the downside of it, right? I mean, for the yeah, Leafs, the yeah. marginal value added um, at that stage in their development, considering the fact that they were already a, a consistent playoff team when they added him and had their best players at the ages of 20 and, and 21. You know, I think the marginal value of his first few years, even though it didn't quite work out, um, was was really high, was worth doing. But he's about to be a drag on that club's ability to construct a contender, particularly considering the high dollar value of so many of their other forward contracts. So, I mean, the Tavares case, you know, for now, uh, I see the case you're making. The, the counter is that the Canucks aren't as close now as the Leafs were then, even though it hasn't worked out for them in the playoffs. And then, the, and then the corollary of it is you're about to see why that type of deal can be so risky 
when your best players are as young as some of Vancouver's best players are. Now, now I want to try to go to Kimberly here, gentlemen. Uh, she's been waiting patiently on stage. She did get on, but by then I'd given Jugpreet the, uh, the green light. If she's still there and ready to answer our question, I desperately want to hear from Kimberly H. Or, sorry, Kimberly P. Kimberly, please tell me you're there and listening. I am here. I am listening. Yes, let's go. Ask away. <laughs> Uh, I'm wondering what you guys think the implications are if Halak retires. Wow. Wow. Uh, coming off the top rope, I'm going to stick handle and pass that one off to Harmon Dial. <laughs> I think the the thing you kind of have to ask is why would Halak retire um, in the middle of the season? I mean, he's not going to have to play a, a whole lot, uh, especially with the Canucks in the playoff chase. And so, I mean, if I'm Halak, I, I'd love to keep cashing checks, uh, playing backup. Um, so I think, I mean, I don't know the, I, I mean, I can't say that I really thought of that possibility in depth in terms of what that would actually mean in terms of any cap overages. But I mean, he's already got his bonus. So, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't know. I just... I don't know, Drancer. What do you think? Like, well, I, I just he, can't. He's got 250k in incentives to make sure that he plays a, a couple more games and lifts that save percentage above 905. So I, I don't think that's a really a high probability um, uh, outcome here, but it's a fascinating one in the event that you know I, I don't know exactly what would have to line up for that to be how this plays out. What I what I do think is that the club was already facing a really daunting task, finding Halak, a contender willing to eat a $1.5 million bonus pay payment, um, you know, that he was also willing to waive for and that was willing to give up assets to acquire that deal. I, I already thought the Canucks were walking a near impossible tightrope there. Um, with the, with his form the last two games and the chance that, you know, the next eight games Boudreaux singled out, Demko likely to run with all eight, um, does he even get in again before the deadline? Because if he doesn't, I do think his value is now at a low ebb, um, which does complicate things for this club. So this team is still treading water around the trade deadline, um, which is possible because Demko could take them there, right? What happens when they need to go back to another goaltender? Like if they get into a back-to-back -back situation on the 19th and 20th, Calgary-Buffalo, and then Colorado-Minnesota on the 23rd, 24th, uh, so now you've got four games and six nights as well there. Do they just ride Demko and hope for the best? Or do you, all kidding aside, consider bringing up one of the other kids? And I know Martin's not a kid, but do you consider yeah, I mean, Martin I, or, or DiPietro at that point, given how little faith you have in Halak, and now he's going to be stewing in the shit of this loss for the next three weeks? I, I think it's Martin, personally. I, I would not be surprised if the Canucks end up re-signing Martin here. At some point, um, you know, they, they're not going to have a lot of money to spend on a backup next season, especially if Halak's $1.5 million bonus compounds on to Braden Holpe's buyout bonus to effectively, like, kick Luongo recapture another year down the road. You're going to need to go very affordable uh, with your backup next season. I think you're probably relatively comfortable doing that since you have Demko anyway. But uh, I do think that it has to be Martin. Um, if you're in a do-or-die situation at this point, considering I that Halak hasn't even gotten to the halfway point of his last two starts. But it just makes you think, if that's the way it ends up, what a waste tonight's performance was. It's all hindsight, but financially, yep. it all happened tonight, and when they get to their next two back-to-backs in three weeks oh. from now, 
if you're turning to Spencer Martin, oh my God. Is it all hindsight though? Because I was saying this would be a tell about the organization's overall posture as far back as when, right? Like January? I know, but at the same time, they also wanted to make sure because yes, you could make a hockey case for playing Demko today. And for me, I think they should have. Just because it's not like you're playing four and six. You've got two days. You can still manage his fatigue level and everything like that. Like I, not in hindsight, I felt they should have played him coming into this. But had that happened, you know how that would have been perceived elsewhere league-wide and in the agent community, that this player's getting screwed over right here because it just happens to be the game. You know what I mean? Like, that would have been part of it. And Jim Rutherford had talked about this earlier, that they're not going to be that team. They're not going to do that to this player because they think he's been a good soldier, so they weren't going to mess with his playing time because of the contract, right? They knew what they were getting into, even though he didn't sign the deal. It was a different argument or a different management team. But, again, that would have been the narrative. And how much would that have affected them down the road, you know, with, with the next guy, right, Is in, in terms of that type of bonus or anything like that, if that's what they felt they needed. We've got in the comments, by the way, Thomas Drance, Leafs sleeper agent. <laughs> Drance has the same bedspread as Tavares. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the same jammies. And the same jammies. Uh, I want to ask one question right, for, right from the top of this um, of this chat. I brought it up earlier, but Dave asked, asked us, and I think it's a really important question. I want to get Harmon's take on it, and then we'll go um, and uh, and take more questions from anyone who's put their hand up and wants to come on stage with us. But um, Dave asked, said, is it just going up against teams with any kind of transition defense that gives the Canucks trouble? And I couldn't help but think, Harmon, watching this game, like, what do Calgary, the New York Rangers, and the Calgary, uh, and sorry, and the Seattle Kraken all have in common? Plotting defense corps. The New York, the New Jersey Devils, their slowest guys probably Graves, and Graves can transition. Like that blue line moved the puck. The Canucks forecheck, not a factor. How much is this club's success or struggles, in fact, dictated as the foil by how fast their opponent is, Harvey? Yeah, well, I think I felt since the 2019-20 season that their that the Canucks' game has on their forecheck's ability to stifle the opposition's breakouts because um, speed has always been, I feel like, for the last few seasons, what's kind of um, at times been able to kill the Canucks, even when teams like you know Colorado especially would kind of um, come into town. And I always brought up the point that even um, earlier when, when the, 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 and not necessarily this season because Minnesota has since gone faster, but um, in years past when they would play clubs like Minnesota and, and even St. Louis, obviously in the playoffs, um, teams that weren't as fast, but were uh, harder teams that uh, play, that were bigger up front, that played more physically. I thought the Canucks fared better against size um, than they did against these quicker teams that what essentially I, I noticed sometimes would happen is as soon as these quicker decors could kind of beat Vancouver's first layer on the forecheck, um, it always seems to put a lot of stress on Vancouver's defensemen to play tight gaps. And I think what I kind of noticed tonight, especially with the OEL Myers pair, uh, was they seem to kind of like, and I noticed this with OEL, especially, I'm not sure if it was gasping the night before or whatever, but OEL is someone who I've kind of noticed is usually pretty decisive about um, playing tight gaps and uh, and against the Rangers, for example, I thought he did a great job of managing the neutral zone. But then the Devils came in, and it's not just that they're quick on the back end. The Devils are fast um, up front, and Carla, Connor Garland mentioned this 
um, as well. When you have Jack Hughes flying um, up the middle and some of the speed that they have on the wings as well, uh, it's that's a five-man unit, really, that flies uh, is New Jersey. And with OEL, what I kind of noticed was he was a lot more tentative um, and a lot more passive, uh, sort of defending the blue line. And that pair in particular gave up, I think, a lot of easy entries into the offensive zone. And it just felt like New Jersey kept coming wave after wave after wave um, at the Canucks. And, and yeah, I really do think that speed is sort of the biggest sort of thing that kills um, kills the Canucks at the team level, especially um, the, the squads that are skilled and can play with possession. So I think that's why Rutherford has mentioned so so often that he'd like to um, add speed to this Canucks group. And, and, you know, that not only pertains to um, them up front, but also how mobile they're on the back end and, and how they defend the rush. All right, let's uh, let's take another question here from Corey B. Uh, for me. Uh, a lot of talk about plotting defense. Uh, the Canucks seem to have that. Um, <laughs> analytically, before the season, <laughs> only the Oilers were worse. So, what do you guys think? Do you um, one of the, and one of the storylines for Jim Benning for a long time was the rebuilding of his defense core. Do you think they just wait out the inefficient contracts, or do you? go full steam and package them with like a good winger to try and rebuild it quicker. Thanks, gents. Thanks, Corey. Um, man, that's a big question. Like I think rebuilding this defense core is absolutely the number one thing this team has to do. And it's been interesting to watch the last couple games because as the Canucks have begun to score more, don't you gentlemen feel like the chances and bunches have been pretty present the last two nights. Harmon, you were at both games live. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the, yeah. the blue line. The blue line tonight was a train wreck, guys. Yeah, yeah. All six. Levels. I mean, it's it's all six of them, including Hughes. And it started with OEL in the offensive zone. Boy, I think I've seen that play from a number twenty-three many times over the years. Just like oh, where the number is. Usually involves usually it involves a shot into the shin pads, but hey, look, <laughs> um, <laughs> trying to be savage, just trying to get the maniacal laugh. Oh uh, God! Because we look, how many times have we done this show and we've talked about, you know, yeah, certainly Shen has overachieved, right, based on expectations, and Burroughs when he was healthy overachieved, and 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 it was you know it was a great find and a replacement level guy, and that's what you should be paying everybody on this blue line, given what they're giving you, right? But, like, you know, Myers and OEL tonight were bad, and, and Hughes just kind of went along with it. I, I don't disagree, but I'm here for the Farhan retro Alex Edler slander. Um, just just, just putting it out there. I'm here for that. Um, Harmon, what's step one in rebuilding this blue line? Like, do you think you can afford to let all this bad money lapse, or do you have to be moving it out a little bit more proactively? Well, the problem is, I think, trying to find out how you move the bad money. On, on on the back end, or at least some of the inefficient one, one um, because you look at, for instance, Hamannick, and especially the way that he's been playing, you're going to have a really hard time moving that contract. Uh, Pullman with three years left at, at around two and a half, that's a really hard contract to move in a flat cap environment as well. Uh, Myers, I think if you if there's a scenario where a team looks at his sort of performance this season, and Myers ha- has, to his credit, played fairly well, but if you can open up $6 million, um, some way, and there's uh, an avenue to kind of clear up his money, you do it. Um, and then obviously, you know, Oyo's played well too, but again, at seven and a quarter, um, you know, that's pretty inefficient as well. You're paying him to kind of be a, a number one, and 
um, for as well as he's played, he's not been that. But again, the problem with OEL is how are you going to move that contract? He's a no movement clause. And I think because of that, rebuilding the blue line is going to kind of be a multi-year sort of process. And, and that kind of has to be sort of their target as well when they sort of, if and when they sort of move pieces like Besser or Miller or Garland, whichever one of these wingers that they move, hopefully you're able to land a blue chip sort of defense prospect that can sort of come in and hopefully one day um, complement uh, Hughes on the back end. Because even in the pipeline right now, after Rathbone, there isn't a whole lot there. And, and I think outside of that too, I think you're going to have to start thinking outside of the box in terms of building up the back end because it is so sometimes difficult to, um, on the trade market or in free agency, acquire quality high-end defensemen. Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin have to find their next John Marino. Right, you have to find whether it's an NCAA guy, and, and they've mentioned that, or whether it's um, in Europe finding an Artem Zub type guy. You need someone who's going to be found money, and that's where I think it, this is sort of an inefficiency that, that I don't think enough um, top teams sort of take advantage of. Is when you have a team like the Canucks, um, and they're this big market team, and, and yes, obviously recently with the pandemic, they haven't been as um, the purse strings have been a little bit tighter, but. Sure, there's obviously a salary cap, a cap and a limit to how much you can spend um, on on your players, but there isn't a limit on, on how much you can spend on your scouting staff to to build out and find, go out and find guys in Europe. To and really, I think that's where the Canucks, I think, have um, and I think this is just top teams in general. I don't think top teams invest enough in sort of overseas scouting in some of these European leagues because again, if you find an Artem Zub. Right. Uh, a guy who for Ottawa has sort of come in as a young 23, 24 year old, and he's been a stable sort of defensive defenseman, right shot guy, um, sort of playing time with Thomas Shabbat. You, you, you're able to find a piece like that without sort of drafting him or, or trading for him. How, how significant is that value add? And then you compare that to, to the ROI of what spending 50 to 100 thousand dollars for um, a scout over, overseas. And, and, and so to me, I just think. That the Canucks kind of have to start thinking outside the box because this is going to be a multi-year sort of project to rebuild the blue line. Amen. Amen. Let's go to Ben C here. Ben C, I've invited you to the stage. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can yeah. you guys hear me? All right. Ben C, ask away, my friend. Awesome. Um, I'm just wondering what you guys think about the timeline of the retool, as we would call it. Because the way that I see it, with all the dead money that Benning brought in that they are going to have to try to get rid of, you guys see any way that they do this faster than like three years from now will be competitive? Because it doesn't seem like very likely that they're going to be able to get rid of all this money. And even if they do hockey trades or something like that, you're not necessarily going to be getting back much value in the players that you're getting unless you happen to luck out and get someone who kind of revitalizes their career. So do you guys see a way for them to be accelerating this more than like three years from now as being competitive realistically? It's a really vital question, Ben. Thank you. Um, Farhan, I'm going to direct you this to you first and then me and Harmon, because I know me and Harmon are have mind about this. So we'll uh, we'll jump in and critique your take after you've given well, it. Well, <laughs> look, I, I think num- number one, if they – the tricky one for me is the Besser contract, right? And, and I know you think that there's a simple solution there. If they move on from JT Miller, you're not having to pay that ticket when it comes due in two years. 
right? And you can get some asset value there, number one. Number two, it's next summer, which is the key because that's when you can comfortably move on from the Myers deal, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it doesn't cost you nearly as much as trying to move on. Like next summer, the math changes. The real, you know, the, the other challenge in all of this is like that OEL deal is not movable, right? It, like what, what are you going to do there? You've already got a team retaining on him. You're still on the hook for 7.25. And you tell me where the buyout windows are there, where it becomes palatable. But those are the big money deals that need to get moved here, right? Because I think we all, I think all three of us believe that Bo Horvat's going to be a part of the future here. We also believe that in two off seasons, they're going to wind up getting some sort of renegotiation done with Pedersen, right? So, you know, for me, it, it's that it's next summer where the real moves can ultimately be made, right? Not, not this summer. Uh, yeah, I mean, unless unless you're able to shed, you know, like Pullman and Hamannick, I think that's that's basically correct. Like, I, I think I think the club should honestly be probably looking at seeing if they this summer can do some deals to take on bad money, not for assets, but to shed future like better money. Like Tanner Pearson's still a good player, even if that contract. For, and is it three years after this one, gentlemen, or was it a three-year deal? I can't remember. It was a three-year deal. Uh, it was a three-year deal. After this. So you've got two years left on him, three years left on Pullman as examples of deals where maybe you can find a hockey trade for a guy who's got less term, but maybe is, is less useful too, right? I, I, that's the sort of, if you can, I'm almost thinking of like what the Panthers did with Hornquist for Matheson. Right. Or honestly, what the Canucks did or sorry, what the Coyotes did <laughs> shopping OEL, but taking 12 million in bad money up front. Right. Um, I, I sort of think that's going to be something that the club really has to consider this summer. But that does sort of weaken the team. All of that said, with Demko, with Demko in tow, and if you're able to carve out something like 15 to 20 million in cap space to play with this summer, uh, you've got enough pieces that could be better next year that even if you lose one or two of the big ticket wingers who keep getting bandied about in trades, whether it's Garland or Besser or Miller, if you're smart enough in going out and finding the buntings and the cashes, um, you know, I still think there's a way to be competitive pretty quick, um, even if you're still a couple of years out from contending the way we all want to see this team contend. Harmon, Harmon what's your thoughts? Yeah, I think... Yeah. It's it's going to be a, a, a slower sort of build where I don't think it's necessarily going to be well. Well, the Canucks are say out of the playoff picture one year, and they're obviously they're not going to be um, cup contenders the next. And I think what could be realistic is um, we'll see what happens next season. But maybe you look at year two um, as like a, okay, where this is a stepping stone year. This is a year to make the playoffs. And then you're t really targeting years three and four as like, this is when you can really go in um, as an elite team hoping to contend for a cup. And I think kind of like you mentioned, Demko being as good as he is, that helps a ton in terms of you can at least become competitive for a playoff spot sooner rather than later. So even if you're going through this um, aggressive process, uh, process of um, selling a lot of pieces and trying to accumulate um, as much sort of cap flexibility and and, um, and uh, young players as possible. Um, you know, on the surface, kind of like you mentioned, you might lose a lot of initial value, but building that back up to the point where you're sort of around the fringes of a playoff spot again, that shouldn't 
shouldn't be too difficult um, considering the, the, the advantage Demco gives you and, and some of the other sort of building blocks the Canucks have in Hughes and, and obviously once Pedersen bounces back. So I think that's one of the benefits that the Canucks have is, okay, it might take a three, maybe three, three years or so to get to being at the level of an elite team, but being competitive might not actually take as long, even if you're aggressive in selling off, say, whether it's this deadline or this offseason. Yeah, I think it's a good point. All right, uh, we've got a gentleman named Spencer P. I'm going to bring to the stage. Oh, he just put his hand down. Tough break, Spencer P. I'm going to go to Rohan K. Rohan, are you on stage? Yeah, can you hear me? Uh, we can hear you. Thanks for joining us. Ask away, good sir. All right, so I've got two portions for you. Uh, so the okay. first one might be more towards Harmon. Um, a week ago, Hanson did a radio hit where he kind of implied that guys like Highmore or Lamigo are kind of redundant and that they have a personnel issue within their penalty kill. Uh, while I do think like maybe like Horvat is kind of miscast, I think Hanson was kind of off pace here. Um, I was kind of curious how your views on what Hanson are um, or what he said are uh, just in terms of like the opportunity cost of, you know, looking for specialty players or just kind of just going with what you have if they're providing you like surplus value in other ways. And then I guess the second one, um, it's kind of just for everyone or anyone who wants to answer. I remember after the torts firing, stories like the Murphy bed came out after, like, among other stories. Uh, so I was curious if any of you have a story or something you've heard through the grapevine from the last seven years that hasn't been told yet, but would be funny to tell just to commemorate the new medium for this <laughs> podcast. All right. Thanks, Rohan. Uh, let's kick it to Harmon while, while we all rack our brains for some untold Canucks stories. Wait, so sorry, was the... Um... Was the Highmore Lamical question, question just overall or pertaining to PK? Specifically on the PK, are they redundant pieces? Are, right. Is there still a personnel issue on the PK? I 100% I, I think so. Um, I, I think when I look at the PK right now, and I really notice this against um, the Rangers because the Canucks actually played well on the penalty kill the other night, is to me, it, up front, I think Mott stands out to me as the only really high-end penalty killer uh, penalty killing forward the Canucks have. Um, when you look at the way that how strong he is with his stick uh, in winning battles, how he's automatic in terms of his clearances, the speed element that he has, how quickly he closes on guys, the anticipation, the reads. To me, he's just on a different level as a penalty killer compared to um, whether it's Lamico or Miller or uh, Horvat or, or Highmore and, and all these guys. And that's where obviously um, it really stung so much to lose Brandon Sutter for the season is because I, I sort of grade Sutter and Mott um, in the same category as bona fide sort of high-level penalty killers. Um, and you can also throw Dickinson into the, into the same category as um, uh, Islamico and, and Highmore in terms of just not really being it in terms of um, first over the boards, PK kind of guys. And, and I think that's the best way to characterize um, the Canucks' penalty killer right, right now is they have a bunch of guys that on paper should be able to kill, but they're, none of them are outside of Mott, I'd say, first over the boards kind of guys, right? Like even when you look at the defensemen and hypothetically you think of, okay, whether it's a Luke Shen or a Tyler Myers or an Oliver Ekman Larson, there are enough tools there to where you could say, okay, that guy could sort of step over the boards with 30 seconds left and be fine in a second unit role. The problem is when you go to guys like Pullman and Myers and, um, in OEL and, and, and Highmore and Lamico as first over the boards. And I think that's where they just lack high-end options on the PK outside of Mott. So, yes, I still think there's a personnel issue. 
And rather than rather than give a story, I'm going to just uh, because you mentioned Brandon Sutter, we didn't get a chance to talk to him the other night in the press box, and he's making progress and still hopes to play before the end of the season. Uh, he um, he's starting to work out again. He's been working out for the last few weeks. He hasn't got back on the ice yet, but he's close to being able to get through a full workout without fatigue. So obviously went through a lot of stuff, but um, before the end of the season, you might get a little help on the way. It wouldn't happen before the trade deadline. Obviously, there's still a long way to go there, but um, he's hopeful. He does want to play this season. And I'm gonna. I want to save my untold stories for uh, for like an article or something. You've given me a good idea, which is like. What I should go do now that the era is over is is sort of try and get as many um, as many like fun stories uh, about the eight years that were uh, that the Benning access, whether they're Willie Desjardins stories or, um, you know, Travis Green stories or draft stories or or what have you. Uh, that actually you've given me an idea for a good piece, which would be like in the offseason, something like the five best untold stories from one of the dark decades of Canucks history. I feel like that's a project for me and Harmon this summer. Um, Spencer P is back in the queue. I've tried to go to him a couple times. I'm really dedicated. I really want to hear from him. Let's see if this works. Spencer P, are you on stage? Hello, Vancouver. (laughs) Doing well. You're my white whale. I really wanted to get you on stage. Now I have. Ask away, good friend. Is it because you knew I'm not a Canucks fan? Is that oh, why? Oh, no, I, I had no idea. But that, I like that. <laughs> I'm here to mix DMs it up. Before, I've been your DMs on Twitter, and you responded. It's a, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. <laughs> so, Thanks, man. Um, you know, I I saw the result of the game. I can't tell you I watched it, honestly. I am, as a fan of an opposing team, um, I can tell you right now, uh, Quad Room will be playing for my team by the time you guys come to play us. How about that? Is that, a, is that enough of a hint? Well, yeah, um, <laughs> Colorado. Yeah, oh, wow. Look at that. Everyone, everyone's pushing Minnesota. Okay. I don't want to waste everyone's time. Um, Jim, no, God, I was going to call. Yeah, wait, Jim. I, I was mixing Jim and Jeremy up, um, listening to LeBron talk about them. But Jim Rutherford's I, got a, he's a trader pension. Go ahead. Go ahead. You no, know, I do that all the time. I do that all the okay. time. Legitimately. <laughs> yeah. Jim Rutherford's a, I mean, I, the thing that sticks out to me most is like, he, Gave you guys Pearson for Gabranson after trading Haglund to L. Like that whole, and then he traded Gabranson back to Anaheim later, like in like six. Or like, I guess it's like a one A one B one. I saw a lot of the comments talking about getting rid of bad money. Like, is there any doubt that in the next like month, five months, seven months, by the time the season that the team looks entirely different? And two. Since Harmon talked about it earlier, you're you're named the core of like you know the 25, 24, 23 year olds. Are like is that like the range? Are we looking at the guys who are that age or younger as like the core, the pieces you build around, and that everyone older is maybe not like they're just more auxiliary? Is that make sense? Because like I would love to get my hands on Bo Horvat. Sorry. Sorry. No, I, I don't expect it to happen, but like if, you know, I mean, you guys have a sneaky, sneaky adept front office there. I just woke up today and found out Rachel Dory joined. So that's, that's a huge pickup. I mean, like, geez. No question. Well, you guys have, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. No, thank, no thank thanks. For thanks for the question, man. Wait. So, Spencer, thank you. The question, the first question there was about, does anyone remember? Harmon, do you remember? 
I have the attention span of a goldfish, so I kind of... <laughs> Farhan, veteran... Well, no, he was trying to get us to figure out who his fish was. Oh, okay. Uh, I think it's Colorado. Yeah. 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 So, Spencer P. Yeah, I said Colorado. Yeah, yeah so... Um, but the question about the Canucks maybe moving Bo Horvat, uh, I don't see that happening. Um, Horvat, Horvat takes a lot of... Uh, criticism mostly from Farhan. Um, Are you kidding me? <laughs> I just said he's not a bum. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you, just wanna, you can't criticize anybody unless it becomes well. We can't because the management was so bad. It was constructed so bad. You can't criticize a player. Come on, you got to be better than that. No, I, any player whose second digit is a three. <laughs> I'm, yeah, yeah. I I just think Bo Horvat's a good player. And I think there's a lot of teams that would love to add a top-notch second-line center who produces consistently, wins a ton of draws, and always elevates his game when it matters. I mean, you know, the, the fact that another fan's like, hey, do you think we could get our hands on him? That tells you everything you need to know. Um, that, 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 fans, I, I agree with all of those things. I just think you can't say that he's not that he's above criticism. I'm not saying he's above criticism, Farhan. Just, yes, just, you have. He, uh, Alex Edler is above criticism. Um, okay, fair enough. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, <laughs> as for, um, yeah, I'm, I apologize to Spencer. I waited a long time to get him on, and then I forgot his first question. I'm going to go to Jason A. Hey, guys, how you Jason doing? Jason A. All right, welcome to the stage, Jason. Ask thank away, you, my thank friend. Thank you. So uh, we touched on it a little bit already, but I'm just looking at this and thinking that, you know, we're all focused on the Pearsons and the Mots and or not so much Mott, but Dickinson's and all this inefficient money on the short term. But I feel like we're tripping over dimes to pick up nickels here, boys, because at the end of the day, take Dickinson for an example, paying him 2.65 two seasons from now isn't going to hold us back from our cup window. But paying OEL over seven in three, four or five, six seasons from now is going to be kind of the elephant in the room, is it not? It's a very good point, Jason. Thanks for your question. Uh, short answer is yes. The OAL deal is going to be a headache at some point down the line. Um, there are some buyout off-ramps that I think make sense. They're sooner than you think, in my view. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I have no – as well as he's played, I think that trade has been – because this team's not good enough as constructed – you know, a, a, a huge setback, like a huge setback for this club's rebuilding effort. Uh, Harmon, Farhan, you want to chime in? Yeah, well, there's, there's no doubt. I mean, we talked about opportunity cost on the OEL trade, right? This isn't about how this contract is necessarily going to age, even, you know, in, in three or four years, because I think we all expected that he would give us something this year, the next year. Like, there'd be a couple of years where the contract would be palatable and he'd have, he'd have a bit of a bounce back. Um, but Again, it is opportunity cost, right? And how long do you want to wait on that window? And that is a massive, massive impediment sitting there at $7.25 million on, on the cap, right? So that, that's the biggest thing. It's not necessarily the player or what he brings in that moment. He's never going to provide that level of value, right? That's just not going to happen at this stage in his career, even if he treads water for two years. So it comes down to just, yeah, that, that, that is a massive, massive um, impediment for this team moving forward. The uh, the other thing about this is, like, when I'm sort of going on my regular rants about clearing cap space being the most important thing, right? For me, it, it kind of has to start with big pieces that might have value, right? Like, it has to start with the big ticket wingers because those guys might be wanted. Those guys might have value. 
you know, even once you get down to the Dickinsons and the and the that class that middle class grouping of Canucks contracts, um, you know, those are money in, money out. You're not probably saving money in those deals in all likelihood, even if you can make them in Dickinson's case. Um, you know, the, the best way to clear space, and I just think you kind of have to, at least for a few years, accept that you're working around OEL, and um, and that's just kind of the die that's been cast. I don't see any way to move forward that rids yourself of the OEL deal in the near term, and so I think that's just a reality you have to lock in and work around, and is that ideal for this team, considering that they have the second most expensive blue line in hockey? No. But I just think it's the reality that uh, Jim Rutherford's inherited. All right, I'm going to Russ M. Russ M., welcome to the stage. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hey, we're doing uh, well. My, my question or comment kind of goes towards creating this cap space. I'm wondering if you would be able to find a buyer who's willing to take Tyler Myers if you package him with Connor Garland. Like, do you see a situation where – for example, New Jersey, they just played them tonight, where you take back, say, P.K. Subban for the rest of this year and a lesser player than you would get, say, straight up for Garland in order to offload Myers. Thanks, Russ. That's a really good question. And I do think there's, uh, you know, first of all, that's consistent with my take bad money short term, right, for cap relief long term um, stratagem. It accelerates it significantly. The the problem that I'd see there is, you know, from New Jersey's perspective, if they're going shopping with Subban's expiring deal, I, I think they'd be looking for a higher ROI than than what Myers would likely offer them uh, with the two years remaining on his contract. And so, you know, I, I think that would be a tough one to execute. I do wonder if you could maybe uh, maybe find a way of including a lower end player there. Um, but, but remember if you were doing such a thing, you'd either, you'd probably be taking some money back. You'd, you'd have to, but also I, I do think you'd be diminishing your return to the point where it might even be you paying a surplus to get off of a Connor Garland. And I don't see how that um, sort of furthers the, the short term end. Like if the Canucks are going to make moves to clear space before the deadline, I think it's really incumbent on them to be like, to get both flex and assets in the equation, as opposed to paying now to offload money in season when that's far easier to do and teams are more willing to entertain those conversations once you get into off-season mode. Um, gentlemen, I'm just going to get to another commenter. We've got a few people left in the queue. I want to make sure we hit as many VIP questions as we can. So I'm going to just um, guide this along. We've got Nirav B. Nirav, welcome to the stage. Hey, guys. Hey. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan. Thank um, you. My question for you guys is, uh, in the last 15, 20 games, we've seen Pedersen's return to form, and yet we're still kind of seeing him on the line with uh, Cold Hoaglander as well as Chason. How do you think we can reconfigure the top nine to make sure we're extracting the most out of Pedersen right now? Thanks a lot. Love it. Great topic for discussion. Thanks, Nirav. Um Let's throw it. Let's throw it. Uh, let's throw it to Harmon first. Yeah, I think in terms of the, I, I guess what's worked recently, um, you kind of have to work backwards in looking at Pedersen's options and look at okay, well, what combination do you not want to break up elsewhere in the lineup? And, and obviously, I think um, the, the 
I think well, over the last couple of games, I think the Miller Pearson Garland line has done a lot of good things on the cycle. Um, you know, Pearson scored in back-to-back games here. Uh, I'd be hesitant to kind of break up that combination, but you're right. There's, I mean, for long stretches in this game, we saw Pedersen with Mott and Chase on, and that's just kind of um, unacceptable. Unacceptable, and, and Pedersen wasn't, I think, at his best like a lot of Canucks um, tonight against Jersey. But I thought he was really going against the Rangers, and yet I don't think Hoglander and um, Chase on were kind of up to his level. And so, to me, you look at the other options. I'd be I think trying to find a way to reunite Pedersen and Besser in some way. I just think those two have a chemistry to where when you look at a lot of the underlying results over the long run, um, that they're greater than the sum of their parts when they're together. And so I, you know, my initial thought without having, you know, really dive too deep into this is maybe going um, Miller, Pearson, Garland, first line. Uh, maybe you kind of, keep uh Hoaglander with Pedersen. I don't know, it doesn't really matter, but you can go Hoaglander, Pedersen, Besser maybe. Um, and then Pod Colson, Horvat, and um unfortunately, I mean, don't want to break up the fourth line, so I guess you might have to sort of drop back uh Chase on there. And kind of just at that point you're hoping that the top six can really carry the mail offensively. And that's I think an assumption you can maybe bank on considering Pedersen has started to round the corner. Wow, Harmon Dial giving Bo Horvat worse line mates than Jim Benning. All right, Farhan, take the ball, run with it. You know what? Like, <laughs> I, I like Pedersen and Besser together as well, but I think Pod Colson fits on that line for me. Uh, and I think Bruce mm-hmm. is showing a lot more trust in him now. And I think that would be a pretty good fit in terms Maybe, of the yeah. second line. You can I, flip him. The other thing for me, and I, I think the question was a little more big picture, because coming into the season, you know, Drancer, you said it as well. We all believe the top nine was going to be a really dynamic group. And Dickinson was the third-line center in that top nine in terms of most projections coming into the year. And I think he has shown that he is a bad fit here in Vancouver. And if if ultimately Lamico is your fourth-line center, then I think Dickinson's the guy you got to find a way to do something with here, right? So does he become a fourth-line winger if all of a sudden the club decides to move on from Mott at the trade deadline uh, because Mott and Highmore together are redundant? Who knows? Um, you know, maybe you do something there, but ultimately that that's the real missing piece in terms of an overall top nine, because I think the feeling was that that Dickinson could make the other two centers so much better above him because he could take the heavy matchup minutes. And if you surrounded him with the right line mates and that just hasn't worked itself out at all. So he's the piece that needs to be removed from that equation. Big picture. I know he's not in the lineup now. All right. Here's my answer real quick. Um, I'm I'm. Uh... I want to see Pod Colson, Pedersen, Besser, right? And and wait a minute, we agree. Yeah, we agree. Oh, and I geez, want to see geez. and I want to see uh, Miller with Garland, and I'd put Chase on there, so that you know I, I figure that way you've got three guys who can kind of play an area game, you know, like Miller can Miller can change his game up to to just play like two heavy guys on the cycle with Chase on. And then you have Waterbug Garland jumping around. Like, that sounds interesting to me. I'm, I'm curious to see that. That's sort of my third line. And then I put Pearson back with Horvat and Hoaglander. I think that's the way to get Hoaglander going again. Just give him his old line mates, uh, see how it works. Uh, that combo is typically done pretty well. All right, I'm going to go to Ryan A here. Ryan A, welcome to the stage. Ryan, I got you? Ryan, five, hey, four. Yeah, I got you. How are you doing? <laughs> Sorry, guys. I got auto-muted for some reason. That was weird. Um, I'm doing well. It's really nice to be on. You guys are awesome. I have a couple of uh, trade hypotheticals. Um, 
hoping you guys can tell me who says no. That's kind of what I'm hoping to get from you guys. Um, okay. The first one is if Rutherford and Alvin decide to move on from Mott just because he might be a little bit expensive for a fourth-line winger, would Tampa Bay take him one-for-one for, one for Cal Foot? And the second one is a little bit juicier. I was talking to a buddy about this the other day. Carolina seems like a team that really wants to capitalize on their window, and they haven't really pushed the envelope like a lot of people thought they would the last couple of years. So what do you guys think about us giving them Miller? And in return, we get some combination of Martin Natchez, Ethan Bear, and maybe their first-round pick. What do you guys think about those trade, trade hypotheticals? All right. So before I let you go, I just want to make sure I have this. We're go- we've got Mott to Tampa Bay for Cal Foot. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I say Tampa Bay says no to that, but okay, okay. but maybe maybe if the Canucks threw in Luke Shen, exactly, and, yeah. and sweeten the pot or something. Uh, Tampa Tampa's a team I expect if Luke Shen moves to be the bidder, just because he matches what they need in terms of having multiple years left. They know him <laughs> and they love and they love those fill-in guys on the right side. Um, and then your other your other one was uh, Miller to Carolina for a package around Neckash, Bear, and a first. Thank you, sir. And to answer your question, to answer your question of who says no or yes to that trade, I'm going to invite the stanchion to the stage. He's also he's also working on the armies, but he dropped by from processing 17 different gifts of New Jersey Devils goals. Um, to answer your question, why? How you doing, bud? Uh, I mean, I'm kind of happy to not be running with the game right now and take a break, but I always hate being out of Harbin <laughs> because Harbin's so smart and eloquent, and I'm like, dude, that game sucks, so I'm not happy Harbin's here. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, more along, I'm more along your lines, Wyatt. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll keep Harbin quiet. Uh, who, who do you think says yes or no to this following trade proposal? Uh, Miller to Carolina, to Vancouver, Martin Neckash, Ethan Bear, and a high draft pick. I mean, any first round that's kind of a late rounder is not going to hurt them too much, I don't think. So I think they would take that if they thought that was going to put them over the top. And again, Miller's kind of a unique thing in that he is the guy that has an extra year in his deals. So you're, you're more in control. So that honestly does seem a bit reasonable. Yeah. Uh, you know what? It's I feel like it's the shape of a deal. I think the value is a little high there on the Carolina side just because Neckash is so good. Um, Wyatt, before we let you go back to work, and I know you need to work, just like, what's your, what's your bird's eye preview of the armies tonight? What's your big takeaway for what we saw tonight and what it means for the Canucks in the big picture? Oh, it's everyone's arguing about Halak and it's kind of been simmering in the background for a while. Like how much do you want to pay a, a backup goalie? And it's not like he's paid, you know, a ton, but even every little bit counts. So having Halak getting paid, having a multi-year deal, that bending, uh, you know, contract it's one of those things that yeah people are going to talk about and you know it's another game which you couldn't let Demko have a head off so that's the talking point man it's going to be one for the next week or so I think and what's the army spin on this uh yeah I mean I have I like Halak but he's 36 and yeah there's gonna be a big debate is the team in front of him is it Halak and you know what it could be both it really could be both so uh, (laughs) I kind of like the idea that yeah maybe like again everyone's like Spencer Martin Spencer Martin he's kind of this cult hero put anyone in net for cheap money. That's kind of what I view it as. So that's kind of the army spin. You know what? Just get a cheap guy in net. All you gotta do. Is the, is Even the Kevin Woodley? <laughs> Never Woodley. I want a goalie. Never Woodley. <laughs> <laughs> so is the, armies, is the armies coming out tonight as Team Spencer Martin? 
Uh, I mean, it's team not a lack, which it sounds meaner than it's meant to be. Meaner than it's meant to be. I'm just saying they could probably get a portal option in there. Oh, Burlock, he's had such a tough experience here, man. Well, no, no other oh, goalie should want to sign here, because basically if you're a veteran goalie who wants to get paid more than a million and let you say you want a one or two year deal, that shadow of Demko is so huge for a team that is not good defensively. Like, it's a no-win situation for almost any veteran goalie. Holtby failed at it. Halak failed at it. That is a position for the Spencer Martins of the world who want to try and get an Angela is happy to be there. Yeah, you're right. The Curtis Sanford school of backups. Like, that's <laughs> probably where the Canucks need to go. I, I, I mean, I don't disagree with you, especially because don't you feel bad for Halak coming in and just getting lit up today when it's like the Canucks just gave up as many or, or if not more chances the night before. But Demko just like he eats scoring chances the way I eat Fruit Loops for breakfast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, Markstrom did it. Demko's doing it. Like those things where it's like it's setting such a high standard that yeah, sometimes even I get kind of confused. Like, is this team good? And like you're like, wait a minute, how much is Demko? Well, you know, and now since the All Star break, this team's leading the NHL in scoring, right? And all of a sudden yeah. you're looking at that and thinking, well, maybe it's not just the goaltending. But as Boudreaux said after yesterday's game, no, it kind of still is the goaltending because those scores don't look like that if Demko doesn't make the saves early. Yeah, like we've seen several games in which if it wasn't for the saves you saw early on, the team would have been out of it. And yeah, the timely scoring, which wasn't there under Green, is now kind of here under Boudreaux, and that's nice to see. But it almost makes it worse for goalies because now you've got these games in which they blow out the flames or Demko plays amazing. Then Halak comes in and has this kind of game. And it's, yeah, it's a bit unfair, but it's also like, that's just, it's a rough outing for him, man. Like you sit there and, you know, again, Luke Shen's scoring on you. Um, but then you start, like, out of that game, you could tell he wasn't on it. Like, he's playing deep in his net. I, I referenced Felix Poffin several times. Uh, I just don't know what he was doing on some of those goals. And it's just, again, I just think if you're a veteran goalie, it's a really a big no-win situation with this current Vancouver team. So, for the audience that doesn't know, and I don't know how you know this, but Wyatt, Wyatt and I and, and, and Harmon and a few of our colleagues have a group chat. And in the group chat, if you are, insult the flying skate jersey, you are muted. You are ceremonially muted. Um, the Canucks wore it last week, and, or last week, and it looked great, and it and made for a fun night out of 7-1 shellacking of the Flames. But don't you think the logo is still a problem, Wyatt? I mean, yeah. Oh, no. I get it. The logo is not great, but the color scheme is awesome, and I think it really pops in HD. Like, if you watch any standard def, like, I try to watch Save the Dr. Cash, he's my favorite goalie, and it's in standard def, and it's garbage. Like, oh, this guy's making saves? I can't even tell. And, the skate logo doesn't really pop in those videos, but nowadays with the, like the black jerseys, the, the red, yellow, and orange, it looks so good. So you know what? I don't care if the skate looks so good. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not here for pop. your logo apology. <laughs> <laughs> this, this reasoning will not stand, Wyatt. It's ridiculous. The logo doesn't out. shrink. Yes. No. 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 Okay. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Can we get to the goal song? Because I hate the goal song. <laughs> I don't even know what the goal song is. What is it again? I can't even sing it because I can't sing, but it's the culture club. Oh, song. yeah, yeah, right. You know, la, 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 like that. Come on. Like, I can't. Uh, yeah. We got, we got to get something better than that. We need some excitement, some intensity. Not, come on. That's a bad I'm song. with you, actually. I agree 100%. All right. Well, hey, Wyatt. Yeah. yeah. Wyatt, I was hoping yeah. you'd get madder about the logo so I could abuse my mute powers and just cut you off mid-sentence. But you I are. I get mad behind <laughs> the <laughs> you are, you are, as always, a reasonable gentleman. Thanks for dropping by. Good luck finishing up the armies. Thanks, boys. Everyone have a good night. Cheers, Wyatt. All right, we've got three more. Let's rifle through. This is a lightning round for the for the three remaining VIPs. Then we're gonna wrap it up because we've been going for a bit. I love this format, gentlemen. Thank you for taking the time. I had a lot of fun. This won't be the last time we do it. We're also overwhelmed by the response. So 
Thanks to all of you VIPs who've come in, who've asked questions, who've kept the chat lively, uh, who seem to have enjoyed it. Uh, it was a lot of fun for us, too. But let's rifle through our three remaining in the queue. This is Jordan, Jamil, John. Guys, we're going to go lightning round here, so keep your questions snappy. We'll start by welcoming Jordan J to the stage. Jordan J. Hey, hey guys. Thanks for doing um, this. Our pleasure, man. Lightning round. Let's go. Okay. Okay, quickly. I just want to say I'm on Team Besser, but um, I don't think there's been a sign-in trade for a few years. I agree if not trading Besser now because he doesn't have a lot of value. But some way, somehow, they have to get a right deep prospect or a stud coming back. Do you see them signing Besser and then trading him down the road? All right. It's an interesting question. I think that's probably their best play to extract max value. But I suspect the more likely course would be a deal either um, at, either a, like at the draft or ahead of free agency with the other team um, already having the right to negotiate with him. Or, or a deal at the deadline for a, for a similar uh, RFA player who's got a problematic qualifying offer situation. Just off the top of my head, some guys who fit the bill. Yes, Barry Kotkaniemi, um, you know, uh, the guy in Boston, Jake DeBrusque, uh, Kasperi Kapanen. Those are sort of three that come to mind for me right off the hop. Uh, if the a Besser deal happens by the deadline, I think that's the shape that it'll take, just because that's the shape that'll allow the Canucks to... Um, return max value, but I'm with you. I don't. I don't think you trade Besser at a low ebb of his value. All right, let's go to Jamil. Jamil, light, lightning hey round. Let's go. Hey guys, great format. I'm gonna hand it off to my son. He has all right, Jamil's son. Let's go. Okay. Okay. So I have a question. What do you think Rutherford and Alvin could do to improve the Canucks defense lineup? I love the question. Thank you, Jamil. Thank you, Jamil, son. You guys are the best. Let's kick that off to Farhan. Uh, Farhan, the oldest. Sorry, sorry I, I cut out for I was just helping my daughter do no that. No worries. No worries. Can you jump in? I, I, will, I will summarize it for you. Jamil's son wanted to know what Alvin and Rutherford can do to improve the Canucks defense. I want the oldest of our panelists to answer a question from the youngest of our subscribers. What would you see done to improve this D, Farhan? Well, well. First, I would let Jack Rathbone play in the NHL very, very Standing soon. Standing ovation. Second, I would move Evan and... There you go. Uh, second, I would um, find a way to just dump Hamannick's contract and Pullman's contract as fast as possible because based on dollar and term, they're going to be much more easy to move than a Tyler Myers, at least for this year. I think that becomes this offseason's project. And then next offseason, you move Tyler Myers and you are going to have to suck it up for a little while on – OEL, as you say, that they just might need to work around that. Every team's got one albatross contract. The problem for the Canucks under Bending was they would have three or four. So, you you know, and, and they didn't take their medicine with OEL. Now you're going to have to. But I, I think there are exit points for those other contracts. I, I can't tell you who to bring in tomorrow other than Jack Rathbone, but those are the steps and timelines to at least get rid of those three guys. I mean, to me, Rathbone and Burroughs would be here full-time next year. Harmon, I want you to weigh in on this quick. Um, what's a step the Canucks could take before the deadline to take a step in the right direction on the blue line in your view? Well, if they're moving a piece like Besser or, or, or a Miller or Garland or whoever it is, we've, we've talked about it a lot. It has to, it, you kind of have to try and net uh, a high end D prospect. Um, and then that kind of just has to be your route ahead of the deadline. I like it. All right. Last one. 
Sorry, sorry to Rico who put his because uh, I said it was the three, and we do have to go. We've gone for over an hour here. Um, John T, you are up on stage. You have the last question in our lightning round and the last question in our Canucks post game live chat. How are you, sir? Good. How are you? Doing very well. That's good. Um, I just had a question um, about scoops, actually. Uh, given that we're coming up to the trade deadline, yeah. uh, your colleague. Rick seems to be constantly chasing them, bugging people close to teams, close to players. What benefit do clubs get out of revealing this kind of information to, to media and to journalists? Oh, it's a good question. Thanks, John T. Um, gentlemen, I think I'll handle this one as, uh, as I can put my old PR hat on and let everyone have the first base in Vancast bingo as a result. You know, partly, partly what you are doing, I think... You know, it, it depends on what your strategy is and what your overall media strategy is. First of all, a lot of stuff that gets out there in terms of trades, in terms of contracts, a lot of it does come from agents. A lot of it comes from relationships that people have with agents. Sometimes you get scoops through players, people close to the players, um, and then occasionally, too, the league, right? I, I mean, there's a... Um, there, you know, when I was working on the team side, there used to be a paranoia that the moment you had the trade call, it seemed to get out, right? Like immediately. And so why, if it's going to leak out from the league office anyway, or if it's going to, once, once, the, once it's down on paper, uh, some national insider is going to have it. If you want to take care of your guys, if you want to take care of the people you have relationships with, or, or if you want to service, for example, local writers, um, you know, you, you kind of want to be proactive on it because otherwise, you know, it's going to be one of four or five guys who get the story. Sometimes sometimes things break for all sorts of uh, more cynical reasons than that. But as a general sort of why it, why it happens the way it happens, um, you know, oftentimes it's that uh, a, a media guy who has a good relationship with a team executive. Um, here's a tip from X person close to the player and then quickly is able to confirm it but sometimes too it's teams you know feeding the people that they believe help them or that they have good relationships with or who they know are working and chasing hard on the story um and it really just becomes about who's going to call you back who's going to swipe left on you there's a lot of politics and who breaks the news um in the nhl and uh and a lot of the reasons uh, that i just laid out are sort of uh behind some of who gets it and why um, anyway, I think that's going to do it for us, gentlemen. Um, I'm going to wrap us up, wrap us, wrap us up, because it looks like Farhan's already left the stage to go work on math um, <laughs> with his uh, with his daughter. But thanks to all the VIPs for coming out. We are overwhelmed by the response, and I, I suspect we're going to do this on a far more regular basis going forward. Because I, for one, had a blast. Harmon, you still there? You want to say bye to the VIPs? Yeah, I'm just about to leave uh, the Prudential Center. Um, so yeah, thanks. It was honestly, it was a ton of fun. I love the interaction. Safe travels. You doing? You getting yep. into anything in Manhattan tonight, Harmon? Too late for that. I actually got an OEL article to, to work on. Did a one on one on one with him after practice. You. Listen, just so just just so everybody understands how this went down. Drancher's dog Wallace had a bit of an injury, so Drancher being the responsible husband and and dog owner, dog father, whatever you want to call it, that he is. I better figure out the name because I'm one too now. He said, you know, I'm not going to leave. He said to his wife, I'm not going to leave you here alone. So he called Harmon and he says, Harmon, hey, listen, I've got an issue with Wallace. I need to stay. Can you? And before he got the question out, Harmon's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, you, you couldn't even finish the question. And dude, you're 20, you got per diem, and you're in New York, and you're writing articles. And it's, it's too late. It's I, midnight. I have it's seven midnight. nights. I have seven you're nights. In the city that doesn't Get sleep. Out. Go have fun. Go eat dinner. <laughs> Come on, Parm. Hey, and make sure to get to Parm, my friend. Make sure to get to Parm. Uh, uh, Parm is not just uh, my favorite place to eat uh, dinner in Manhattan, but it's also an old PatCast legend dairy spot. So make sure to hit it. Hey. Take the pilgrimage to Parm, my friend. Will do, guys. Thanks. All right. All right. And, and, and Drancher, listen, in reference to the last question about how things get moved along and information travels, I have two words for you. Industry sources. Industry sources, baby. I'm the I'm the foremost abuser of that. Oh, oh that is so pretentious. You can't just say sources. <laughs> you have to go say industry sources. That is the height of pretentiousness. Well, if it's the height of pretentiousness, that's why I'm comfortable using it. <laughs> oh, oh guilty, guilty as charged. Like we, we need to scold harm. You know, like in the olden days when I was his age, and I, actually I wasn't his age doing this, I was in my mid to late 20s when I started. You know, and back then there were no per diems. You were on actuals. So you could spend whatever you wanted. And my first trip to New York and L.A. and the like, oh, my God, I wouldn't be writing Oliver Ekman Larson. Wow. Wow. Good for you. You should have come up in the untold stories question. All right. I know. Maniacal laugh. Well, ton of fun doing this with you, my, my friend. Uh, we'll be back with another VanCast later this week, but thanks to everyone who participated and joined us. We had a blast, and we will do it again maybe as soon as next week if I can uh, if I can talk these two gentlemen into doing it again with us. Yeah, now Wednesday we're looking to do our more traditional VanCast. Okay? We're, we're looking to kick that out on Wednesday, and then early next week we're also chasing down some Canuck guests. Yeah. So uh, when we come back next week, maybe we'll look at doing that, and then maybe Wednesday after the Habs game we can potentially look at doing something like this again. But it was fun, and... And just so you know, you know, we had a conversation earlier today and they said to us, our producers do this. Well, you'll probably be somewhere between 40 to 140 on the high end. At the low end for the bulk of this, we were at about 180 and the high end got above 230. So Canuck fans and VIPs, we love you. You're totally engaged. Yeah, thank and, you. And uh, you've made us want to do this more. Thank you. You guys are truly the best. We can't say that enough. Um, thanks for your support. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining the VanCast Live. A very first, a maiden voyage in this format. It was a ton of fun. All the best. Before we go, we should fill you in on a couple of other podcast options if you are so inclined. JT Comfer of the Colorado Avalanche joins Sean Gentili and guest co-host Sean Shapiro this week on the Athletic Hockey Show USA. And as for us, thanks for listening to this special edition of the VanCast with our live room following the Vancouver, New Jersey game. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform, don't forget to leave a rating and a review. We promise we're going to do this again real soon, probably as early as next week. Right now, get annual subscriptions to The Athletic for just $1 a month for six months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. Our next episode this Wednesday. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in.